Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep history alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, ICH researcher with Heritage NL. On today's episode, we talk with Eileen Murphy and Sandy Yates, who are participants of Heritage NL's Mentor Apprentice Program. Mentor Eileen Murphy has been making spruce root baskets for 41 years and has both taught and demonstrated at workshops, festivals, in school settings, and with individuals wishing to learn the important part of our heritage and culture. Mr. Anthony White from Shallop Cove, Bay St. George, was Eileen's instructor and mentor. Apprentice Sandy Yates has experience weaving branches into tension baskets and also composes large-scale sculptures using driftwood, seasoned birch, and discarded found objects. Sandy is currently studying fine arts through Memorial University, Grenfell Campus, and works in the craft industry seasonally. She produces mixed-media artworks about Newfoundland and Labrador. Hi, Eileen and Sandy, and welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. So just to start off, can you give me a little bit of background? Maybe, uh, Eileen, you can start just kind of where you grew up and um, how you kind of came about learning this skill. We're talking about spruce root basket making, a traditional craft from Newfoundland and Labrador. I, uh, I'm from Cornerbrook on the west coast of Newfoundland and Labrador, and I grew up in Cornerbrook. I'm graduated from NASCAD with uh, my degree in art education, and I went on to teach art as my career in, um, uh, in my life. And then I also went and did a uh, degree, a master's degree with literacy at Mount St. Vincent. But I've been incredibly passionate about uh, Newfoundland and Labrador crafts. And particularly for me, it's been the joy of working and learning first spruce root basket making technique as is done in our province and having the opportunity to work with some really fine people to show them how to um, make their own baskets. And Sandy, how about yourself? Kind of whereabout did you grow up and how did you come to learn about spruce root baskets and, and kind of get this interest? Um, I spent part of my life in uh, Newfoundland and uh, half of my life in Ontario. So I've been here most of my life. I'm living in Kings Point now, and I was introduced to spruce root basket making through Eileen. Yeah, I, immediately I was interested. Uh, Eileen's a very uh, enthusiastic person, and uh, yeah, I was super excited to to learn from her. And can you, um, can, I guess this one's for either of you, but can you speak to a little bit why you applied for the uh, Mentor Apprentice Program? What, I guess, piqued your interest about it? Uh, again, um, Knowing Eileen and uh, and uh, I, well, I didn't I didn't know her that well before this, but just knowing how enthusiastic she is about uh, teaching and uh, the arts and Newfoundland and Labrador history, I uh, I was really inspired to learn a new craft, and uh, I feel really privileged to have gotten to learn uh, through this program. And I was really lucky to have. Sandy as the apprentice because I heard about this opportunity through the Newfoundland Labrador Heritage Society and you can't imagine how happy I was because losing our traditions and our craft skills it, it was just happening at such a volume over the years not just with the spruce root basket making but you know things were starting to dwindle it was so easy to buy things off the shelf in stores and that and um, this gave, I thought, a chance for craftspeople and their craft to be 
if I can use the word highlighted and to be focused on. So I thought, well, if I applied, it would be so unique to have the opportunity to teach a one-on-one -on -one with somebody uh, that would be genuinely really interested in the craft. And th that is a golden opportunity. Um, well, I felt it was for me to help continue the, the, the craft in the province. And Eileen, you talked a little bit about the craft, but can you tell us, you know, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, what is a spruce root basket? Well, first of all, I should tell you a little bit about the history of spruce root basket making. And I'm going to tell you about a man who you will probably hear about a lot if you ended up talking with to me or with me for an hour, because I have to praise him. His name is Anthony White, and he's from Shallop Cove out in Bay St. George here on the west coast of our province. And if it wasn't for Anthony White, this craft would have totally died. Uh, he was so generous in passing it on to six or seven young students in 1980. I was enrolled in the first visual arts program at the Bay St. George Community College, along with some others. And we had an opportunity to take an evening course in October, November of that year. And Anthony White kindly agreed to teach us as novices, you can imagine now, we didn't know a thing, spruce root basket making. And he... It was in his family. It was in his ancestry. And how spruce root basket making became, came to Newfoundland is a very wonderful story, unique in its own way. Uh, when the Acadians were forced out of Nova Scotia in the 1755 or something, a lot of them came to Cape St. George to live. I mean, they were looking for a place to survive. And you can imagine now what Newfoundland was like in the 1700s. You know, you couldn't go to a store and buy a chocolate bar, that's for sure. And uh, anyway, they brought with them, the Acadians were uh, originally from France, and they brought with them their knowledge of making ribbed baskets. And when they came to Cape uh, Bay St. George and Charlotte Cove, as it became to be known, they met Mi'kmaq. And the Mi'kmaq had unsurpassed knowledge about the trees and the kind of plants that grew in, in our island. And with their combined knowledge of plants and vegetation and the know-how of how to do the ribbed baskets from the French, um, this, this basketry became uh, a very, well, I wanna say unique, but at that time they didn't think it was unique. They were making baskets because they needed containers. And these containers were used for transporting potatoes or vegetables or anything that needed to be carried. And, and eventually as time went by, you would find these containers in sh people's sheds and warehouses and root cellars and pantries. They weren't meant to be put on a, a shelf and adored and looked at as an object or um, you know, a, a piece of craft work. They were utensils, generally, to, to say, right? And Anthony White passed on those skills to the six or seven that were there, and I happened to be one of them. And that's how I found out about it. Now you're asking me, and I'm sorry it's taken me so long, but I had to, I have to mention Anthony White and his ancestors and his son, Danny White, who is out in Shallop Cove now, is also teaching spruce root basket making. And so it's still there within his family where it should be. And uh, Danny is an expert basket making uh, maker. I mean, he, he has to be, he learned from the, the uh, expert himself, Mr. White. 
So spruce root baskets are containers that are woven in and out, in and out with spruce roots, the roots of a spruce tree. So when you start a basket, you need to get the skeleton or the bones, or let's say the ribs of the basket. And those are made from withdrawed, which is wild raisin, some people call it. Or also you can use uh, cherry trees, choke cherry trees, and I've used a dogberry tree branches, I'm talking about, for the ribs and the handle and rim. And you can also use basket willow which is not really native to Newfoundland, but you can find it all over, especially around the outports and that, because it just grows like a weed. Once you have a tree, it spreads like crazy. And the branches are really flexible and nice for ribs. So if you have the bones of the baskets made out of these branches, then you have to dig, and Sandy will tell you this is not easy. Hey, Sandy, digging the roots. It's laborious, it's hard. And it takes a lot of time and effort. And so then you go looking for your white or black spruce. We use white spruce. And you dig the roots coming from the tree and you take them home and you uh, soak them. They have to be wet to be pliable. And you peel them and you split them. So one root is actually two sides of a basket, if you bear with me on that, on that description. Uh, the best thing about spruce roots, the Beothics were famous for using spruce roots, and they used them to make their, to lace or to lance together their canoes and their mammatiques and bark baskets that they made, or I'm sorry, I shouldn't say baskets, they weren't woven, but ba uh, bark containers, and even some of their clothing. And spruce roots are, will last forever once they're dry. They won't get ruined in water. They, the the Beothics knew that. They were, used them on their canoes. And they held fast and strong for many, many years. So that's, that's, I guess, the description. I mean, the basket in itself is usually a handle and a rim and all the woven roots around the, ri the ribs with two ears on each side, two diamond-shaped, some people call them God's eyes. But the French... Um, Mr. Anthony's ancestors and, and the people who still make these baskets in France refer them to them as the ears of the basket. And they are the main structure. They hold everything together and in place. They're like the beams of a building, I guess. And are those beams made out of spruce root or are they made out of what you were talking about earlier with rod or, or another? Um... Oh, thank you. Thank you for uh, having that clarified because yes, it's made out of spruce roots. It's made out of one root split and one half is on one side of the basket and the other half is on the other on the other side so that they look kind of you know symmetrical and the balance is there and i guess sandy can you speak to a little bit about um how how kind of going through this process what it was like uh learning this uh eileen just mentioned going into the woods and kind of uh, getting the roots so can you speak to just a little bit what it was like um actually learning and going through this process so it was fun. I can say that. Uh, it was hard work, as Eileen said. Um, yeah, working with nature is something that I like to do in my own art practice. So uh, that was, yeah, that was, that was fun. What kind of tools did you use when you were going out? Did you, was there special tools to dig up the roots or to actually make the basket? Were there any particular um, things that you used throughout the process? 
a lot of our own hands um, and uh, digging with like a gardening tool to break through the top ground. Um, after that, it was it was pulling with our own hands and, and muscles. And uh, yeah, that's right. And I like how uh, <laughs> Sandy is a woman of a uh, few words. But I remember that one of the days that we were out digging and it was a scorcher, wasn't it, Sandy? Yes, it was. It was hot enough to fry an egg on the rock. I kid you not. You know what this summer has been like in Newfoundland. And we were down on our hands and knees tugging and pulling to get the roots where we were digging. The roots were very forgiving. They were closer to the top of the sandy soil. And if you're digging in sandy soil, it's easier than going around rocks and stones and and deep in the forest where you're, you're shifting other roots out of the way and that. But it's still really extremely hard. And Sandy, what was the longest route that we got that day? I believe yours was 20, over 20 feet. Yeah, that was, and, that's right. Yeah. And I think mine was 11, almost 12 feet. Yeah. And that's that's right. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. And that's it. That's really great. Because <laughs> when you get a long strip of peeled uh, roots like that you can sense that oh well if this works out okay I may not have to be here till midnight digging you know what I mean it's like striking gold in the root world and Sandy started I said to Sandy said to me from the woods where she was because she was down in the dirt and I couldn't see her and I heard her voice and she said oh wait till you see wait till you see (laughs) when she came out of the woods like there was no end to the root. She was out, but the root wasn't out. And she kept coming out onto the this little kind of dirt part that we were looking at the roots on. And I said, my God, <laughs> it's like it went for ages. And so, of course, we had we were laughing, carrying on and giving high fives. And it was a real, real treat. But it was really exciting. It's true what Sandy said the labor is really intensive. I mean, your back feels it, your shoulders, you're pulling with your whatever muscles you have in your, your wrist and your arm. And you know, you're there for a long time down. So it's not, it's not something that you could do if you didn't like the woods, like the flies are all over and everything. But nevertheless, it's, it's worth it. The pain is worth the gain, I guess. Would you say, Sandy? Oh, totally. I agree with that 100%. And you mentioned where you were digging, it was a bit sandier. So are there particular areas where it's better to get spruce roots? Is there like areas of the woods that you might look for if you're going out to get spruce roots? Oh, yes, very much so. I've dug in the worst places that you can imagine. I mean, moving rocks and everything. And I find when you're deep in the forest, and I've dug that quite a lot, like I had just mentioned, you know, you're going around so many obstacles and, you know, you can thread the roots through them and, you know, kind of lift things up in that. But compared to being in a, like along a sandy beach or a cove where the spruce might be um, growing quite near the edge, then you know it's not going to be so bad or you hope it's not going to be so bad. And at the same time that I'm saying that, the roots have a memory and they'll always remember where they've been. So sometimes when I've made baskets where I've dug them and there's been really a lot of labor around rocks and that, you'll see in the root the bend where it went around a rock or even where it went over another root and thinned out a bit and then picked up in thickness as it went on for some other reason. And sometimes when you're digging roots, you can see where they had a very difficult time growing whether it was for the weather that year and the climate 
or perhaps part of your root looks really weak, well, maybe a moose peed on the root. I mean, if it was close to the surface, or perhaps someone, an animal had uh, snuggled down and chewed away on it. You don't know, right? But this is what I love about it. And Sandy made a reference to this. You're out in nature and you're using nature. I mean, your, your material is a fiber that came from nature which is quite miraculous when you think of it. It's, it, it, it's so wonderful to be out there in the fresh air and um, working with the fibers that, that are around you. And every fiber that you choose, choose, excuse me, is so different. I mean, they're all spruce roots, but all of them have a difference. And so you've kind of walked me through the process. Can you talk um, a little bit, and I, and I, maybe this, maybe this is something that you've already answered, but can you explain to me what makes a good spruce root basket? I'm going to say this now, and this is my opinion, okay, because I believe that a good spruce basket shows the craftsperson who made it, their personality. I'm not talking about a streamlined, glossy basket that balances perfectly on the table. I'm talking about the basket that was hand done and shows that it was hand done. You don't want a basket really to look like it was from a store shelf. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that Anthony White's baskets were like you've never seen before in your life. They were, and I will use the word perfect. They were beautiful. In They were symmetric. They sat right. They, you know, they were made by the master. Uh, my, my definition of a really good spruce root basket is that it has all of its components, the ears, the handle, uh, the ribs, and everything will last forever, that it's put together and constructed in a way that is really true to the fibers. You have to work with the fibers. If there was a, if there was a root that went around a turn and you put that in your basket, well, you might maneuver that turn where it's going to turn naturally into the curve. But if you wanted to have that uh, in your basket on a straightaway, it will just sit where it's going to sit until it bangs up against the other other roots. So it's not going to look like a perfectly smooth surface, but it will have a special look and there's no two ways about it. And the best thing of all, to answer your question further, you wanted me to say what's a good spruce root basket. A good spruce root basket can also be under the interpretation of that craftsperson. It doesn't have to have a handle. It doesn't have to be round. It's like my hopes for the, for the apprentice, well, for Sandy sitting there, is that she'll take the knowledge that she has about working with fibers, spruce roots in this particular craft, and go with it. Make other shapes, make other utensils or make sculptures or, I don't know, clothing. I mean, take it and run with it. Because if, if, we, if our young people don't take the initiative to create their own designs and, you know, their own creations, well, that's for sure. That's a way that craft is going to die. It's never going to be around. Not that there won't be the standard, and I'm using quotation marks, of the shape that we know of as the spruce root basket, but there can be so much more too. And Sandy, I mean, that was a great segue, I guess, into my next question, which is, um, Sandy, off the top, you mentioned that you really like working with nature and working with natural materials. So um, as Eileen just mentioned, I guess, how do you see yourself incorporating spruce root um, basketry or spruce root weaving into your practice moving forward? 
Well, I would love to, I haven't had the chance to make another basket since we uh, worked together. So I think that I would like to focus some time into just practicing um, the baskets themselves and go from there because it's such a beautiful craft for sure. And can you touch on a little bit, um, I guess you're outside like beyond spruce root basket making, um, what kind of art practices you do? Uh, so I work a lot with um, driftwood. Uh, so I've made some uh, sculptures, large, large scale sculptures or medium scale and a needle felt and a rug hook. So those are my, my three main go-tos and now making baskets. And were there any skills that you had um, previously that were transferable to making baskets? Uh, that's a good question. I would say that I could consider some of my driftwood sculptures weaving in, in their own way, puzzling the pieces together. Um, yeah, I found that uh, that was helpful with basket making for sure. And you also did your tension baskets that you had made yourself, which I'm sure helped you with the... That's them. correct. Yes, I did do some tension baskets. And this is a question for both of you. Sandy, you can answer it first, perhaps as the apprentice. And then Eileen, maybe you can talk to, uh, you know, how I guess experience might change this answer, but I guess roughly how long does it take to make a, a basket from start to finish? Well, so we had five days and I was like, Eileen does workshops in three days. And the whole time I was like, I don't know, maybe I'm slow, but I don't know how you do this in three days. It was really intense for me. And I don't know, like I'm kind of, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So I think that I was trying to get everything right the first time. And Eileen was like, you know, you don't need to be perfectionist, just have fun with it kind of thing. But um, yeah, so uh, it took me five days. Uh, I'm sure that with more practice, you could, you could do one in less time for sure. So I'm glad Sandy answered that question first. <laughs> Because that's the hardest one for me. Everybody always asks that question. I'll tell you, you know, you're working with natural fibers. So this, this is how you have to think. You're going to have breakage. You're going to have some roots that got, just didn't soak, right? You might, have, you might have to make one rib 10 times. It depends on the fiber that you're using because none of it is store-bought. None of it has been prepared in advance. And it has its stories to tell. So if it doesn't want to go left, it's not going to go left. You know, if you can get my meaning here, my drift. Now, I'm going to, in all of that that I've just said, and of all the baskets that I've made, and all of them are, are like almost mistakes, you know. But I can tell you that if I sat down and I had all the materials in front of me, now I'm not talking about the time I spent going out, looking for the site, digging up the roots, going out and getting the branches. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about having all the materials right there in front of me. And I'm making an eight inch, say, diameter basket. And I was able to work with no interruptions and no, no, nothing going wrong, no breaks, no nothing. I could make a basket in about 25 hours. Now, would it be a shining star example of a basket? Maybe not. Maybe not because you work with your fibers and what you do, but you would be able to carry it off in your car, right? You would be able to go on and use it. But that rarely happens with me. Now, some people can go lickety split and they can have a basket like you wouldn't believe, but I'm not just, that's not been me. And I think at the beginning, you mentioned um, just kind of why you felt the apprenticeship was important and, and kind of 
craft skills in the province dwindling. So can you talk to a little bit why for spruce root basketry, why you think it's important that this tradition continue? And maybe Sandy, you can start and then Eileen, you can finish off. Yeah, I just think that it's uh, an important part of our culture. Well, you're asking basically why is it so important? You know, these baskets, I, I keep saying tell a story and they certainly do. They, they show us that our ancestors didn't have an easy life, but they had intelligence, ingenuity, and cre- creative ability. And if there was a way that they could create, design, and make, and use their natural fibers around them to help them survive, because it was about survival, uh, then they did it. They had to come up with a way that something had to be carried. And the the reason why these crafts have to be kept going is because of that. It tells us a bit about our human nature and about uh, how as Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, how we all started out. It talks about our ancestry. It talks about who had the knowledge and who shared it. And then how did it keep going? And if we don't go back into time and realize that these things are very, very precious, we're going to lose our own history and our own heritage. And Newfoundland is so full of uniqueness. It really is, as is other places. I'm a Newfoundlander, I'm a bit biased. So, you know, that's why I think it's really important. And having somebody like Sandy, who truly loves being around nature and is very craft-minded to realize that this is something that she could really learn and go with, and then want to put the time into it, because it takes a lot of time to learn, I think it was an opportunity made in heaven, the craft at risk program, I mean. I think that was kind of my next question, you know, what was what was the benefit of the apprenticeship? I talked a little bit off the top, just kind of how you heard about it. But I guess I guess that would be my next my kind of my next or maybe my last question. What benefit was the apprenticeship to actually learning and teaching uh, spruce root basketry? And maybe Eileen, you can start and Sandy, if you have anything to add, you can add it after. Well, yeah, I guess I just spoke in length about the benefit of it. And, you know, I will speak personally, too. It it was so unique to have um, the province and the Heritage Society recognize the importance right out in public to say it. And And then the government to say, we're putting money behind this. This is worthwhile. It meant a lot to me as a craft person because I've been working by myself for 42 years trying to keep this craft going. And I've I've taught individuals. I've taught four other individuals over all these years and I've taught other workshops. But to have the government and, um, you know, the heritage recognize the, the need for this kind of gave me the extra incentive or the extra feeling of worth that the craft really should be recognized and I was lucky I I I was lucky to have an apprentice like Sandy who was so open to learning a traditional craft I mean I could have all the knowledge in the world but if I'm not passing it on to somebody who doesn't value it then it's that's kind of lost too right you know for me learning the history Eileen is very knowledgeable and uh such an inspiring person. Um, I think this is a great program. I'm, I'm grateful to have the opportunity. And and I guess my last question is just if there's anything that I haven't asked about that I should ask about or anything that you want to add. And I guess Eileen, if you want to start off and Sandy, if there's anything you want to add. Well, I mean, these are really amazing life experiences and I experience it and Sandy experiences it. And 
you know, the knowledge of how to find and prepare these wonderful threads, these roots of nature, if you want to say, is, is the first step. You can't, you can, you can buy kits anywhere. You know what I mean? Like, you know, everybody can buy a kit on the how to, and now you can go on YouTube and you can watch the people step by step, but to get the actual fibers and materials yourself and to know the history and the ancestry of the people who created these in the very beginning, I think is the, is the most important difference uh, when you're talking about a traditional craft and how this program was run, how craft at risk was run, put a lot of emphasis in that. Right from the very beginning, I can remember somebody who I was speaking about craft at risk and I wasn't quite sure about it. And I was asking them and they said, we're really interested in the knowledge and the information and where it came from. Who were the first people who, who uh, actually created this craft? And right away, I thought, right on, that's exactly where it has to start, right where it begun. Great. Well, thank you both so much. Thank You're you. More than, more than welcome. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.